and welcome to this instalment of Preview. There's been a bit of a change of format this time, as unfortunately Mr Vernon cannot be with us, so I'll be stepping in. I'm Laura Clark, and joining me are Dan Pienaar, Ali Johnston and Cameron Skader. Welcome all. We are now only a few days away from Cranley's EU referendum debate between Paul Lomas and Chris Grayling, chaired by Anne Milton MP. In today's podcast, we will be analysing what they'll be saying and looking over what we expect to be the key talking points from Friday. Keep a lookout for our final episode when we'll be analysing each speaker's arguments in depth. Also on today's podcast, we'll be looking at Michael Gove's comments on the single market and David Cameron's Churchillian rhetoric on the possibility of war should we vote to leave the EU. So to start, Michael Gove has been commenting about the single market. Let's listen to what he had to say. If we uh, look at the arguments that are made now about how Britain might suffer outside the European Union economically, they are all arguments which are a reprise, a a rerun um, uh, of the original case that was made against um, staying outside the single currency. But more than that, you can see how countries which are outside the European Union are able to uh, forge trade deals and to grow faster than the countries of the Eurozone. One of the striking things about the EU is that it's brought economic insecurity and massive youth unemployment to countries like Greece, Spain and Portugal. I think it would be very difficult for any German finance minister to go to BMW um, and to say, I'm afraid you're going to have to lay off workers because I want to punish the British for being democratic by erecting trade barriers. I can't imagine that the French president is going to say to French farmers, do you know what? You can no longer sell wine and cheese to the Brits because we're very upset that they voted leave in a referendum. So, Ali, anything to remark on this? Um, so, in general, he, he's been on the Andrew Marr show last weekend and he said that Britain would be able to negotiate a series of tariff-free trading deals with other members of the European Union if we were to leave. Um, he said, and I quote, we should be outside the single market, we should have access to the single market, but we should not be governed by the rules that the European Court of Justice imposes on us, which cost businesses and restrict freedom. So I have two main queries with this. Um, He uses the word should a lot. We should have access to the single market and we should not be governed by the rules. Um, I'd I'd be interested in finding out whether these are backed up by any realistic talks that have gone on with other leaders of the European Union, because it seems quite idealistic at the moment for me. And um, also, I I believe that uh, the rules imposed by the European Court of Justice are there for a reason. And I don't think he's taken into account the com- competition laws and the reason why they're in place. And they're not simply there to add costs to businesses, um, but they're, they're there to make the market, uh, the single market, an equal place for all of the members. And so I'd, I'd just like to query whether all ru- rules in place, all rules in place are needless. And so he's also said that at the moment there are no tariffs between the UK and other countries in the European Union. Why should we seek to impose those tariffs when we are outside? Um, so I have, I have another two queries with this, and firstly, we cannot guarantee that they are not going to impose tariffs, regardless of whether we impose tariffs on others. We, we are not in, in talks with the um, German ambassadors and the French ambassadors about whether they're going to set um, tariffs upon us. And if we were to leave, potentially we, this could make us unpopular, in my own opinion. Um, and also his argument seems to be against imposing any kind of tariffs at all. Uh, he's saying, why, why add costs to people's businesses? But then why do we have tariffs on other countries in the first place at all? Um, so at the moment, in my opinion, it seems quite idealistic the way he's speaking. It doesn't seem to be backed up by any substantiated facts. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I think what I'd say is you talked about how we don't seem to be at present in talks with the French and the German ambassadors. I think that's probably, uh, the, that's probably the fact, the reason for that is probably that um, 
no member of the EU is really considering that we're actually going to leave. Uh, and you say, well, they might end up imposing trade barriers, etc. anyway, almost vindictively. I don't think it's in their interest to do that, because um, if you look at the EU, the Britain is the, it's the second fastest, it's the second largest economy within the EU. It's the fifth largest economy in the world. I don't see why they'd want to jeopardise their own trade, their own, the EU's employment in order, for the, in order to impose tariffs on the UK. I think that would be vindictive and, if anything, would be self-harming. I don't see why they would do that. What would stop these countries from just putting Britain with the rest of, of the world in terms of uh, trading within Europe? What's to stop us from drawing a border around France and saying that is the EU single market? Mm. And Britain, because it's outside of that, it needs to abide by the same rules and tariffs that we place on everyone else. Obama's already said we'll be at the back of the queue, so... But there's also the point that ultimately the EU is protectionist and there are tariffs for, um, for countries that seek to export into the EU. Surely, I think the key argument here, the key um, query is whether we do in fact have more to gain from actually leaving because 40, 45% of Britain's trade is with EU partners, but 55% is with non-EU partners. So perhaps, if anything, we could increase trade with non-EU partners and if anything trade might go up and we might have more to gain than lose and if anything the idea that we might lose trade with the EU might be a moot point because to add to that the EU of all the continents is the slowest growing if you look at America if you look at Africa you look at Asia they're they're all a lot faster growing than the EU why would we want to continue to have access to such a slow growing wider economy when if anything what we really want is greater access to but when also you're talking about growth EU has also experienced the most growth in the past, so it's not going to be growing at the well, same exactly. rate as other economies. Um, it's, not, it's, not just, it's not just slow growing, it's also slow growing and stable. When you look at China, when you look at India, they're all economies that are booming, but have the possibility of collapsing. Okay. I wouldn't, um, say, go, I wouldn't say the recent wanna... triple-dip recession is particularly stable. Well, Gove has also suggested that we join the likes of Bosnia and Albania in the free trade zone. Um, we, I don't know what you think about that, but personally, well, I did some research into this, and the free trade zone is purely designed for countries to, um, uh, well, it's a, it acts as a stepladder into the EU rather than a stepladder down from the EU. So he's, 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 he's recommending that we join the rights of Bosnia and Albania. It seems quite idealistic, but it also seems to be um, catching on to um, a device that's used to help people join the EU. My question would be, what um, benefits does that have, and do Albania and was it Bosnia? Do they have freedom of movement kind of between with other countries? Or what are the terms of that? Did you? Oh, well, I guess that's for our listeners to look up. <laughs> well, there you go. Some very interesting points. Um, but we'll move on. Elsewhere, David Cameron has been accused of fueling Project Fear over comments he made about leaving the EU, possibly leading to war in Europe. Let's listen to what he had to say. And in the post-war period, he argued passionately for Western Europe to come together to promote free trade and to build institutions which would endure so that our continent would never again see such bloodshed. Isolationism has never served this country well. Whenever we turn our back on Europe, sooner or later we come to regret it. We've always had to go back in and always at a much higher cost. The serried rows of white headstones in lovingly tended Commonwealth war cemeteries stand as silent testament to the price that this country has paid to help restore peace and order in Europe. Can we be so sure that peace and stability on our continent are assured beyond any shadow of doubt? Is that a risk worth taking? 
I would never be so rash as to make that assumption. Some strong words indeed. So Cameron has been criticised for these comments. What about it? Cameron? Well, um, Cameron's been accused of sort of fueling the whole idea that we're doomed if we leave the European Union. And I don't blame people for jumping on that conclusion because he's saying things like we'll start another world war and well, uh, what peace in Europe will be immediately shattered might actually be rooted in truth. But it's originally, the way that he went about it was a very negative way of doing it. And it was a way that just further um, proved to especially the Leave camp that all the Remain camp are trying to do is just paint it in such a negative light. And when we're going to say, I don't want to be doomed if we leave, so I'm going to vote to Remain. Um, but that's the key point. Now, he's, he's put it such a negative way that's actually almost helped the Remain camp, I mean the Leave camp, um, rather than the Remain camp. But what he was saying, I don't think is that bad. It's just been interpreted in a way that is that, that sort of negative rhetoric. And it doesn't help that it was covered in, in other people saying all these terrible things if we leave. Theresa May saying that we're at more, more risk of a terrorist attack if we leave, and then someone else saying that we're at less risk of a terrorist attack if we leave. Um, and all that happening is really difficult. So the timing of Cameron's comments are difficult, but I don't think he's entirely wrong because the EU has and always will symbolise a, a strong um, attempt made by Churchill, made by the world leaders after World War II, to unite Europe rather than split it up. Uh, I'd say that there's probably a degree of truth in that. What David Cameron tried to do is he contrasted our position now within the EU to in the past when we've had war, for instance, um, 1900s World War I, when Britain wasn't really part of Europe and you had World War One, and then Britain had to get involved, and what he said was that that was to a, a much greater cost than had we been part of Europe in the first place. But um, what, I, what I'd have to say to that would be that now you have the UN, we're a member of NATO, um, and also the idea that there's the whole kind of nuclear threat, the fact that we have nuclear weapons, and there's the idea of mutually assured destruction. I don't think that there's any real immediate threat. And also, I'd say, previously where we were divided in Europe, kind of, in factions, Germany, etc., on one side, us on the other. Now you very much have kind of Europe versus, say, the Middle East versus the threat of extremism. You know, you had the, the attacks in Belgium, France, the 7-7 bombings, of anything. That's a uniting factor. But isn't that exactly it, that it's Europe versus these countries? And if we cut ourselves off from Europe, we're therefore cutting ourselves off from a way and a means of fighting extremism, of fighting the Middle East, of making sure that we make a stand against Russia. Isn't that what the EU is about, and that's why the security case is so strong? I mean, I would argue also that I don't. you can still take a stand against extremism and not be in the EU. I don't think taking a stand against extremism is where this, the EU in-or-out debate should be focusing on. It should be focusing on the economic reasons and throwing rhetoric like World War III is going to start isn't helpful to the debate when we need to be dealing with facts and we need to make an informed decision rather than basing our decision on um, politically divisive comments. So I don't think it's relevant to the debate, this whole World War III comment. I'd, I'd agree and I'd say that, for instance, you mentioned um, fighting extre extremism in Russia. It's the UN that's more kind of responsible for that sort of thing. The EU doesn't really have any kind of remit in... Um, matters of kind of the military. But in terms of a seat on the UN, doesn't Britain stand in, in, in stronger stead as part of the European Union, Union as part of a, a joint collective of, of countries? Doesn't it stand in greater stead sitting on the European Union, having that European Union power rather than being an isolated and cut-off society? Well, we are a member of the Security Council, and as a member of the wider Union, you're saying we'd have more power. I'd argue that we have such little sway in Europe as it is, and what with qualified majority voting, as we've already discussed, I think 
that wouldn't be too much of a factor in terms of our strength. But isn't there an in- inherent paradox you've got here in your argument that you're saying we're, we're not powerful enough in Europe to make a strong stand, but we are powerful enough in Europe um, to be able to, uh, to be this big, uh, strong economy. Like we're saying, we really do matter to the French because we're really strong, but we don't matter to the French because we're hated in Europe. Isn't that a key paradox? I think the French see us as one member of 28 within the context of the EU. Whereas, yes, we are one of the strongest economies in the EU. I think there's, there is a contrast to be drawn there. And I think the Security Council, I think we do have <clears throat> the means to fight terrorism. I don't think the EU really comes into that. Okay, um, great. We'll move on. Finally, to look at the key points that Paul Lomas and Chris Grayling will be making in their debate for EU membership on Friday. So, Paul Lomas is, uh, will be talking about the EU as an imperfect institution and process. Any comments on that? I think he's going to start by trying to frame it that the EU isn't perfect, and everyone agrees with that. Yeah. But um, that's how he's going to start. Interesting. Um, then he'll go on to talk about the EU in its historical context, which is something we've been discussing, um, as a force for peace and integration. Yeah, we've discussed that. Yeah. <laughs> um, he'll talk about its hard-headed slash hard-nosed self-interested arguments in a changing world. I think we'll have to find out what that is on Friday. (laughs) Quite know what that means. Um, uh, He'll also talk about how the UK has prospered in this environment since since 1973. That's interesting, because isn't part of the fact, as Danzi's saying, that we're such a growing economy that we're so powerful because of our membership of the European Union? Who's to say that we can prosper outside the European Union? And 1973 wasn't an easy time for Great Britain. You know, it took Margaret Thatcher to really bring Great Britain back on track. Um, you know, there was so did it take Margaret Thatcher and the EU, or just Margaret Thatcher? Three-day week, just Margaret Thatcher. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't really attribute that to the EU as much as I would Margaret Thatcher, to be honest. But doesn't, well, that's the, doesn't being part of a single market contribute towards that? To an extent, but they were internal problems. They were things like the three-day week, um, the strikes, that sort of thing. But didn't the trade that the EU instigated obviously help that? Well, by providing a single market free trade zone, that no doubt encouraged more industry, no doubt encouraged economic growth. How does that help with the issue of trade unions and things? Well, obviously there, there are internal problems there, but I'm saying the EU is also a considerable catalyst to that. If you want. I'm not sure if it is. I think it's, it was an internal issue that was resolved internally. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what Lomas has to say about that. Um, he'll also talk about the economic benefits of continu- continuing to work within this imperfect structure. Um, he'll set out arguments for trade and benefits, um, both direct and indirect, supported by recent evidence. Something we'll probably discuss after we hear his, yeah. his exact argument. Um, he'll also talk about the UK's global influ- influence being enhanced by the EU standing and uh, the EU's collective impact. Yeah, as we said on that point, um, a lot of our standing in... in in the world is influenced by our membership of the European Union yeah. as much as it is the, our membership of the UN or the WTO or NATO. What's standing do we have in the world, really? I think you only have to look at Obama's comments when he recently came to, to, to see how highly they value um, dealing with a trade bloc. Um, so I think we'll be interested to see what Lomas has to say about that. Yeah. Um, he'll talk about how our security, the security risk will probably, the security will not be diminished and will likely be enhanced by staying in. 
Well, that's much of what Theresa May has been saying about the European arrest warrant and stuff. I expect we'll hear, be hearing a lot about European arrest warrants and um, issues surrounding security on Friday. And finally, he talks about how migration is a benefit, not a threat. Um, any comments on that? Well, he says migration is not, is not where this EU debate should be. Well, he's going to say that migration is not where the EU debate should be centred, and I tend to agree with him on that one, because um, migration and free movement of people are a fundamental part of the single market, and the whole Gove issue about whether we're going to be part of the single market, whether we're not, whether we're going to be part of the EU, is all really difficult. But I think that the facts speak for themselves in that immigration is a positive to the economy. I think I'd agree with that. I think there is a net gain to immigration in the UK, but I think overall it's actually very damaging to the EU because what we've seen is a lot of structural unemployment. You kind of get areas like Portugal and Spain that have 25% unemployment, and a lot of their skilled workers move to the UK. So yes... I would agree that it is very beneficial to the UK, but whether it's beneficial to the EU as a whole, I'm not too sure. That's, That's an interesting point, point raising <laughs> that we might, in fact, leave for the benefit of others. Yeah. Because um, I know um, last week or the week before, we discussed the idea that if we stay in, we can help them. Maybe we'd help them more by leaving and kind of that, that kind of honeypot wouldn't be there anymore. Maybe they'd stay, maybe there'd be less structural unemployment. I don't know. I don't know, but you also have to consider with countries like Spain the huge amounts of British population that go to retire to Spain um, that, that contribute to the Spanish economy as well. So I don't know, it works both ways, but that's an interesting point, Dan. Good. Um, so now on to Grayling's key points. Um, so he'll be talking about how Britain is a nation that has helped shape the world. We have won wars in defence of freedom. We have created technologies that have changed lives. We have spread our cultural values across the globe. Um, he, he believes that the European Union is holding us back. Um, the key issue for the referendum on the 23rd of June is about our future as a sovereign nation. Uh, we can no longer decide on key issues affecting our nation. For example, if we stay in the EU and with our population rising to levels that he believes will be unsustainable, will be unable to set a limit on how many people come and live and work in the UK. So. And that's the immigration argument, yeah. and that's the other side, that he's not so much talking about economic as, as, as much social, about housing, about so, um, social services. But again, that's a really difficult one to do because you're not, there's no way of proving it's going to be any better if we leave or it's going to be any better if we stay. But I think that's a matter of ceteris paribus, kind of the status quo, it remaining how it is at the moment. Because if you look at countries in the Schengen area that have experienced, we're talking extreme levels of immigration, that the, the actual social impacts have actually been very kind of worrying. Kind of you've got massive divides in society and you have factions fighting each other kind of on the streets. It's, it's quite shocking. So I think whether that impacts us, it, it probably doesn't. You know, we're in Ireland, we're not part of the Schengen area, but perhaps in the long term, who knows? Be my career. Okay. Um, he also talks about if we stay in the EU and as the other EU countries take more and more decisions designed to create a unified European government, we'll not be able to say no to any future proposal that will lead to job losses or damage business in the UK. This is bringing up probably the debate about the more unified Europe and the ever closer union and leading to a United States of Europe. Um, which I think, as a consensus, um, most of the British population can agree that we don't want to move towards the United States of Europe. Um, that is quite a sweeping statement, but um, it's about when when we want to leave and whether that we can stop that happening and whether our 
our negotiations can lead to us being able to have either veto powers in some fields or being able to have more negotiation and more um, more differences in regulations compared to other countries in the EU because we differ in opinion but want to stay a part of, a part of the larger union. So it just depends on the level of negotiation that can take place, I feel, that with that one. Yeah, I think when he talks about job losses and damaged business, he's kind of referring to what you mentioned earlier, the, kind of the, le- the level playing field, the idea that we should all be um, competing on the, the same kilter. Which again probably comes back to the socialist versus kind of capitalist argument. Well, it's a bit it's a bit difficult with that because a lot of the legislation that happens in Europe creates uh, sort of the Leave campaigners get irritated when they talk about how uh, European legislation makes up a lot of our laws, how um, agriculture laws, how stuff like that all um, infringe on our sovereignty and our decision to decide smaller parts that the EU shouldn't be legislating about. Um, but the EU legislates not to be an annoying European bloc, but to improve trade, to improve relations, to, and to improve um, the principles of a single market that means that everything can move freely in it. I mean, if you take any toy, if you take any um, piece of electronic, you'll see those CE next to it, which means it's certified by the European standards. Um, and these little, tiny little things like that, um, we would still be influenced if we left the European Union. Which means that if we if we left the EU, a lot of our agricultural stuff, a lot of our um, legislation on the size of things, uh, the safety ones on um, toys and stuff wouldn't change because because of how much we trade and deal with the EU, purely geographically they're close, therefore they're easier to trade with. Um, to do that, we'd still have to adhere to those standards. So I believe that if we did leave the um, the European Union, not much would change in terms of that legislation, and people do get annoyed by that. But I don't think it's much of a problem. Uh, you're saying that. All of that legislation, the idea of ever closer union, is all to improve the single market. I think the very point that Brexit are making is that that's not the case, and that it goes beyond that. If anything, they've gone beyond their remit, and that's what the query is about. So although, yes, some of their policies are to do with the single market, the, very, the point is about ever closer union that they're not just to do with the single market. Because if they were just to do with the single market, I believe we'd have less of a worry about them. We wouldn't really be too concerned about them. It's the idea that... I mean, obviously, there was a, the um, in the Times the idea of the EU army kind of being thrown up. It's these sorts of things. It's not the single market. It goes beyond the single market. Okay. Um, and finally, he'll be speaking about how the EU costs us billions of pounds each year that could be spent on public services at home. Um, well, last year, I've got some facts on this. Last year. Um, we contributed overall initially 17.8 billion towards the EU budget, but we got an immediate rebate worth 4.9 billion, and we got another 4.4 billion in farm subsidies and other programmes. Um, so in total, we, had, we were a net loss of 8.5 billion, if you can call it a loss, because we obviously gain other benefits. Um, but I feel like in the EU, you do have to have net losers and net winners towards the budget. Um, and yes, we are prospering at, at a time like this. Um, but the whole ethos of the EU is to gain people is to help other economies grow, so it is a level playing field in the future. And in the future, we may be experiencing um, a recession or um, we may not be doing as well as other countries. And that is the time when we will be net gainers from the EU budget. So at the moment, we are losing. And um, also, I want to talk about the Norwegian model, model because they are members of the single market, um, even though they're not member of the EU, but they still pay about 94% of what they used to pay when they, or what, what they would pay. Um, if they were a full member, and they still have to accept a lot of the EU regulations, um, and they have accept, and they have to accept free movement of most things, except they have some tariffs on um, food and drinks. But otherwise, um, even being a member of the single market, you still have to contribute towards the EU budget. So you don't just cut out all costs as soon as you leave the EU. 
So that's just something to take into account. I'd probably say um, it's an idea of costs, costs versus benefits because obviously we are contributing more than we're um, receiving in kind of direct payments, but obviously there's trade. But perhaps if we left and we kept that money, we'd gain trade from countries outside. So I think it's dependent on that. And to go to your point, was it Norway? Yeah. Um, I think the payments they do make are in fact voluntary. So I think the extent to which, and I think they get to choose kind of who they um, actually give that to. I don't think look, why would they choose to pay this money? Because it's a lot of money, probably because they benefit out of it and they need it. But then regardless of what they choose, choose it, um, they also have to accept about three quarters of EU regulation um, in order to trade with all the other countries in the EU. Um, so not all the EU regulations which we've been so pent up about would disappear if we were to leave and just rejoin the single market. Cam, the foreign aid, bu- foreign aid budget sits at around, I think, like 20 billion at the moment, and that's all um, voluntary. So I think the idea that they would make voluntary payments is probably a sound one. Okay, well, lots of interesting points that we can raise with the speakers uh, on Friday. Um, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, we hope to see many of you, our listeners, at the speech hall on Friday to listen to the debate. And tune in next week for a full in-depth discussion on polls, speakers and who won. Until then, it's goodbye. It's goodbye from Cam, Dan and Ali. Goodbye. 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 And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.